Well, this morning we're going to pick up in our series. Uh, had a little break last week with uh, uh, just the introductions of Pastor Scott, Esther, and Lucy coming to join our church family, and then uh, hearing a report from um, our missions work in Cuba. So today we're picking it back up, and today is our fifth message in our current preaching series that we've uh, entitled Intervention. And uh, if you haven't been with us for the purpose of this series, we have defined an intervention as an occasion on which a person is confronted in an attempt to persuade them to address a critical issue, but we're looking at that from both an individual basis and as a church. And so uh, the scriptural basis of our series has been and will continue to be for the next few weeks, the seven churches, uh, the messages to the seven churches that we see communicated uh, in chapters two and three in the book of Revelation. And really the, the, the center focus of this series for us has been this thought that if we desire our world to hear the message of the gospel, we must begin by first hearing the message that God has for us, his church. If we refuse to listen to, to hear, to respond to the message that God by the Holy Spirit is communicating to us, his church, how can we ever expect our world to listen to the message that we're communicating to them. And so just to give you a very quick overview, the first week we did a, a, a setup to the book of Revelation so we can understand it. The second week we looked at our first church in Ephesus and we said if we desire our world to hear the message of the gospel, uh, you know, we must, they must first experience our genuine love for them. In our third message in the church in Smyrna, we said if we desire our world to hear the message of the gospel, we must model faith and trust in Jesus in the midst of the hardships of life. Our last time as we looked at the church in Pergamum, we said if we desire our world to receive the message of the gospel, we must be consistent in how we live our lives, not compromising to align with culture. And so it takes us to today where we're looking at the church in Thyatira, and we're going to see that if we desire our world to receive our message, the message of the gospel, we must demonstrate a faithful commitment to Jesus. So we've been following our map along, starting with John on the island of Patmos, and here we are today uh, in Thyatira. This city, this church, is one of the least known, least important, least remarkable of the seven cities referenced in Revelation. Thyatira is a small inland industrial city that focused on commerce and trade and the manufacturing of wool and linen and leather and bronze and other articles like that. It's best known for its dyed cloth, the purple cloth. And of course, we see in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, we read about a businesswoman there named Lydia that Paul encountered uh, on the Sabbath in Philippi, and we're told that she was from Thyatira. In fact, her business was the selling and distribution of this dyed purple cloth, and it's just a cloth really that's dyed with a special substance from a, a plant called the rubia plant, and it's, um, you know, you might be interested to explore that a little later, but uh, it's just known as turkey red, and so it was very well known, very well sought after, very valuable in this time, and this, this city was known for it. Because Thyatira was associated with commerce, 
There were many trade and labor unions that operated there, if you can believe it, in those times. And these unions played a significant role, not just in the economics of the city, but they also had significant influence in the social and the political and the spiritual aspects of life in the city. In terms of being a religious city, Thyatira was not really an important religious city in the Roman Empire at this particular time. However, the god Apollo was considered the patron of the unions that existed there, and it was also seen as the divine guardian of this particular city. The worship of Apollo was a part of belonging to these unions. If you're going to be in the union, you, you worshipped Apollo. And part of that worship included feasts and sexual immorality, as we see that that was a big part of pagan worship at this time. Our scripture for today is Revelation 2, 18 to 29. If you have your Bible, you can follow along. Thank you, Stelma, for reading it. Read a little earlier in the service. The message to Thyatira is the longest of the seven messages, and it follows the same outline as we see in most of the other churches that are, um, you know, spoken to and spoken of in these two chapters. It starts with applause or praising what's good, accountability, exposing problems that need attention, and then action, what the church is called to do to turn things around and what will happen to those who don't. And so we see that pattern and we'll follow that pattern again this morning. So let's start with the applause. It's interesting that in this passage, Jesus introduced himself as the Son of God. And you may not recognize this from the moment, but it's actually the only place in the whole book of Revelation that he is referenced in this way. He is referenced in many other ways, but this is the only place where he is referenced as the Son of God. And the use of this title is significant because he, he's already talked about the one who sits on the throne, God the Father, and it really underscores his intimate relationship with the one who sits on the throne. He is the Son of God. Now what's interesting, I believe, is that the God Apollo was worshipped because he was believed to be the son of Zeus. And he became known as the God of the Son, S-U-N. So interestingly, Jesus is speaking to a church in a city where Apollo is the patron god who was known as the Son of God, small g, and the God of the Son. And Jesus is addressing this church with knowledge of the focus of this city in which the church exists, and he's making it clear to them in this statement as he addresses them that there is only one true Son of God, and it's not Apollo. He is the Son of God. And he goes on to say that he has blazing eyes of fire and feet of burnished brass, and, of course, these are references that the church in Thyatira can relate to. You know, Apollo being the, the, uh, the, the uh, sun god referenced as having eyes of fire with the sun, and he's saying that he has blazing eyes of fire. And, of course, the phrase 
feet of burning brass is also one they can relate to because it is an industrial city and it was one that was familiar with the working of bronze and the strength that bronze represented. And so Jesus is declaring here uh, his power, his strength, and also his ability to see the secrets, the hypocrisy that exists, sadly, in this particular church. So what is it? that the Son of God, with blazing eyes and bronze feet, sees in Thyatira. Well, he says he sees their deeds, and the word deeds is really an umbrella term, simply the things, the work that they've done and they continue to do, and he specifically references four deeds in terms of applauding them, uh, in terms of celebrating what they're doing. And so he says, you know what? I see your love. Now, as we considered in a previous message when we were looking at Ephesus, we said that the theme of love is significant in the writings of John and his community, whether it's the fourth gospel or the epistles, first, second, and third John, or the book of Revelation. And so we said this theme of love is significant. And we said that John's community understood that a genuine love for Jesus resulted in a genuine love for each other. And that love is the foundation of a relationship with Jesus. And when we looked at Ephesus, we found that they had abandoned their first love. They had given up on it, and they were challenged to rediscover it. But Thyatira, this is a different situation. They've not abandoned love. In fact, they're growing in it. There's, the love is more now than there was in the beginning. And so he says, you are loving like I want you to love. And not only are you loving, you're loving more than when you started. Then he acknowledges their faith. Again, the word faith, when used in the writings of John, communicates the idea of faithfulness. Faithfulness. Loyalty to Jesus. Loyalty to one's faith. Loyalty to belief. Just like love, Thyatira has not abandoned faithfulness to Jesus. They've not abandoned faithfulness to what they believe. And in fact, their faithfulness is growing more than there was in the beginning. So they're full of love. They're faithful. And then he addresses service. Service being that voluntary action that flows from a love for Jesus and that faithful commitment. In John's writing, service is demonstrated by following Jesus and sacrificing, even if necessary, to the point of suffering and death. They served God. They served their church because they loved Jesus and they were faithful to him. It was not an act of duty. It wasn't based on a guilt trip. It was not the result of, of some kind of pressure tactics that they were serving. No, they simply loved Jesus and they loved others and they faithfully acted accordingly. And so Thyatira was, has increased in their service to Jesus. They've increased in their service to others and in the church more than they were in the beginning. And then fourthly, he celebrates their endurance or their perseverance. It captures the idea of steadfastness, to endure even in the midst of trials and suffering. It entails more than just simply putting up with circumstances or holding on to whatever is horrible passes over. In fact, what it does is it captures the idea of experiencing and finding victory in the midst of painful 
circumstances and realities. They were loyal to Jesus and their faith despite their hardships and their pressures. This church, these people are not stagnant. They're not declining. They are growing. They are advancing. They are gaining ground. And Jesus sees it. He applauds it. He, he calls it out and he celebrates it as he talks about them. Accountability. So we see that Jesus here has issued the highest level of praise on this church, but then he shifts to address some serious concerns. And there are two specific areas that necessitated an intervention by Jesus in this church. Surprisingly, one is unfaithfulness. While many were growing in faithfulness, while that was a characteristic of the church as a whole, there were others within this community and they weren't faithful to Jesus. It's important to understand that the genuine gift of prophecy was highly respected in the early church. And those who were participants in prophecy were often elevated into leadership positions. Prophecy in the New Testament generally is understood as one who stands with the empowering of the Holy Spirit to speak the truth of God. And so because of that, preaching in the New Testament is prophetic. Teaching is prophetic. Sometimes I have people who have very interesting theology ask me if I'm a prophet, and I say, well, of course. Of course. Every week I stand in what I believe is the anointing of the Spirit to preach the truth of God. I'm a prophet but that's not really what they're thinking about. But occasionally, prophets would predict the future. Now, sometimes we want it always to be about that, but sometimes they did. And we see an example of that in Acts when Agabus, the prophet, comes to to Paul and takes a belt and binds his hands and says, when you go up to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound. And so Agabus is telling Paul something that's going to happen to him. He's prophesying about the future. It's good. Now, where he gets off track is then his emotions come into it and says, I don't want you to go. You shouldn't go. You should stay here. And Paul goes, no, I have to go. (laughs) So Agabus didn't understand where the prophecy ends and something else takes over, but these realities existed in the early church, and I like to believe they still exist today. There was a woman in the congregation in Thyatira that was recognized as a prophetess, and it was not unusual in the early church for women to be prophets. We see that with the daughters of Philip. It wasn't, it's not unusual for them to to be prophets and to hold significant positions of leadership and authority. If you want an argument for women in ministry, you just have to read the New Testament. She was prominent, and she was prominent because of her gift of prophecy. But it turns out that she was a false prophet. Now, I like to think that's not because she's a woman. She just happened to be a woman who was a false prophet. Same way a man could be a false prophet. In fact, Jesus, when he refers to her, refers to her as Jezebel because of her character and her motives. In the Old Testament, Jezebel was the Canaanite wife of King Ahab of Israel. And she worshipped Baal. She worshipped idols. 
And she wasn't content to worship Baal and idols by herself. She wanted all of Israel to worship Baal as well. And so as we read that story, we see that she convinced her husband to integrate this pagan worship of Baal into the Israelite worship of Jehovah. And we know that she was very successful in that endeavor. In fact, she was not the one who sat on the throne, but she was very much the power behind the throne. She was responsible for the killing of many of the prophets of God as she pushed her agenda forward. Now, this particular Jezebel in the church in Thyatira was a prophetess who was influencing church members to participate in the pagan practices of the trade unions in their city. And Jesus refers to these practices as the deep secrets of Satan. It is a deception. It is based on lies. And Jesus is intervening, and he's calling her out. Now, Jesus, in calling, making the statement, the deep secrets of Satan, he's actually referencing a common Gnostic teaching that was prevalent at this time that was referred to as the deep secrets of God. And the deep secrets of God stated three things. Number one, by experiencing sin, you're better equipped to serve Jesus. You need to experience sin in order to appreciate grace. So sin away. That's the modern day version of we like the testimonies of the really sinful people that got saved, but not so much of the people who were always faithful. The more you sin, the more amazing it is, and the more you can experience grace. So sin as much as you can, because as much as sin abounds, grace abounds, so go for it. That was the teaching. Secondly, it didn't really matter what you did with your body, because it was your soul that was pure. And so the Body and mind were separate, and sinning with your body, well, that had no impact on your soul. So you could do inappropriate things with your body, but spiritually you were still okay. And the third idea captured with this Gnostic teaching is that if you didn't practice or participate in these so-called freedoms, you were missing the deeper experiences of God. Thus, the deep experiences of God. That if you weren't one who was sinning more so you could have more grace, who didn't care about what you did with your body because it was your soul that mattered, if you were participating in that, then you knew the deep secrets of God. You were on the in. And so Jesus is addressing this, and what he's saying is this. What she is claiming as the deep secrets of God is deception. It's actually the deep secrets of Satan. It's not the deep secrets of God. And so Jesus, when he speaks about her, when he speaks about the situation, it's interesting the language that he uses. He he uses language reflected of the marriage covenant. And he talks about it in terms of faithfulness and fidelity and, and what's expected and required in a marriage relationship. And so by abandoning truth, by practicing idolatry and immorality, this woman has abandoned her relationship with Jesus and is having an affair with another so-called truth, which according to Jesus is lies. And not only is she having an affair spiritually, 
she's leading others into this spiritually adulterous relationship with her of idolatry and immorality. And so he's addressing this segment in the church where this woman in leadership is leading a group of people astray. He also, sorry, addresses tolerance. And we touched on this a little bit last time too. Some saw her for who and what she was but refu- and refused to be a part of what she was encouraging. They refused to be a part of what she was participating in. And although they didn't participate with her, Jesus uses the word tolerate. He says, you've tolerated her. You've tolerated her activity. They left her alone. They permitted her to continue to lead, to influence the church. They're, they're refusing to confront her. In the meantime, more and more people are being impacted. Sin is increasing. The church is suffering. So who was it that was being misled? Who is she misleading? He says it's the servants of Jesus that are being misled. The word servant is the one who is devoted to another to the point that they disregard their own interests. These servants have made a strong commitment to Jesus. And they've made that commitment at great cost and endurance. But because of this woman, she's being allowed now to continue without being confronted. And even the followers strongest followers, even the servants of Jesus are falling away. And Jesus is calling it out. Action. We defined an intervention, we said, each week as an occasion on which a person is confronted in an attempt to persuade them to address the critical issue. And so here Jesus is doing it. He's calling out the church in Thyatira. He's calling out this woman in leadership. He's calling out these people who are going along with her, and he's calling out those who are letting it happen. But it's not enough that they know that he knows the truth. He doesn't just leave it there and expose them. Jesus' agenda here is more than criticizing them. He wants them to change. He wants them to repent. And so the first thing he does is he calls for repentance. And as we've seen in the challenge to the other churches, this word repent just keeps coming up over and over and over. And we say it means to to walk a new road, to change direction, to stop doing what one has been doing and do something else, to stop going where one has been going and go somewhere else. We said it means to despise one's past sins, to amend the damage that's been done and to to start new in a new direction. And what does Jesus say about repentance here? He says, in referring to this woman, he says, I've given her time. I gave her opportunity to repent. I gave her a window of opportunity. There's been a duration of time to respond to her sin through repentance and change. But Jesus says she's refused. And Jesus says the time of her repentance, it's past. The door is closed. The window is closed. And he says she's now going to reap the result of her sin. And her particular 
impact will be that she's going to be stricken with some form of terminal illness. Not only her, but those who continue to commit, Jesus says, adultery, spiritual adultery with her. Those who can continue to violate their relationship with Jesus by living this double hypocritical life. Now, there's still opportunity here for the others. Her window is closed. Her opportunity is gone. But Jesus is calling the others. Now, you know what? You need to repent or else the same thing's going to happen to you. Now, I want us to note, this is not a text to form the doctrine that people with terminal illnesses are suffering because of their sin. If, if you come to that conclusion, you've totally missed what's happening here. But in this particular case, the impact of this woman's sin does result in her illness as her punishment for what she's doing. Now, those who refuse to repent will be an example to the other churches of the power and authority of the Son of God. He says he's the one who searches. He investigates the hearts and the minds. He's telling them, nothing is hidden from me. I see it all. I see it. I know about it. He knows who they really are. And he knows if they refuse to repent. They can try to make it look whatever they want on the outside. He knows their intentions, their motives, their hearts. And he says he's going to issue judgment in accordance accordance with their sin. So he calls for repentance. He's saying none of this is necessary. Just repent. Change. Fix it. Get back in relationship. It'll be all right, but, but I'm calling you to it. I'm giving you an opportunity. The second thing he says is hold on. For those who've stayed true, for those who refuse to participating and participate in violating their relationship with Jesus, he tells them, hold on, grip firmly to what you have. Well, what do they have? What is it they have? Well, their lives indicate that they want to be faithful to Jesus in their relationship with him. And if they're willing to continue in this until the end, to not be distracted by what's happening around them or be deceived by it and fall into it, Jesus said, for those of you who hold on, there's going to be a reward. First, he says, you're going to have authority over the nations. It's interesting, when Jesus tempted, when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he offered him the nations as his inheritance. And Jesus refused the appeal to power because he knew the promise of Psalm 2. A messianic psalm that through the cross, the nations of the world would be his inheritance. The cross was the means to that. And so the risen Jesus who conquered death, hell, and the grave is is now the one true way to salvation. And he does, and he will rule the nations. And so he says, I rule with an iron scepter. I have a shepherd's hook, you know, with this iron tip attached to it. And as a great shepherd, I'm going to lead the nations. And he says, you're gonna, I'm going to ultimately destroy sin and the enemy, and those who are faithful to me are going to be a part of this. They're going to rule with him. They will share in the authority of the victorious Jesus. The second thing he says, if you hold on, I promise you the morning star. This is a reference to the rising of the sun following a night of total darkness. Now, some of you may be struggling this morning with the fact that you lost an hour of sleep. 
I don't feel sorry for you. In my house, my wife informed me she needed to be here at least 30 minutes earlier than normal this morning, which again gave us the wonderful privilege of seeing the sun rising. Thank you. That was a beautiful gift this morning. It's a reference to the rising of the sun following a night of total darkness. As the sun rises, it eliminates the darkness and brings victory over it. Jesus is the morning star. And this is a reference to when he returns, that his light, when it rises, will eliminate the darkness. And those who are faithful to him, Jesus said, will receive the victory and the salvation he brings if they stay true to what is right. So that's what Jesus has said to this church and for us to consider this morning. So what are some things that we can look at today? I'd like to start with faithful approval. At the outset, we said in comparison to the other churches referenced in Revelation, the church in Thyatira was located in a small city and was one of the most insignificant churches. Now, Jesus makes it clear in addressing the church in Thyatira that all churches, all churches, regardless of their size, are important to him. That the size of a congregation, the prestige that it holds, the place that it's located in, does not determine the value of the church in the kingdom of God. That the church is a community of believers that are a part of the body of Christ, and for that reason, every single church is critically important. Critically important. Jesus watches every church closely. He sees beyond the surface. He knows the true character of each church. Now at EPC, we're not considered a large church. We're likely not that well known. We're not really prestigious. But EPC is an important church. This church matters. It's important to Jesus. It's important to those of us who gathered as a community today, even though it was incredibly difficult to not hug somebody, right? And I saw those of you who broke the rules. Don't think I didn't see it. I work for God. I know everything. I saw it. But this church matters to Jesus. It matters to us. And it matters to this town that we live in. This church matters. And Jesus desires that not only we be a loving community demonstrating his love to each other and to the community around us, but that we're in fact increasing in our love, growing in our capacity to love, growing in the reach of our arms as we extend the arms of Jesus. Loving today more than we loved him, more than we loved each other, more than we loved this community yesterday growing in love. Jesus desires that we not only serve selfish, selflessly, but that we continue to increase in our service as we serve him and as we serve others. Folks, service is and has always been a challenge in the church. I mean, we all hear these, you know, 80-20 rules and realities that 20% of people do 80% of the work, that 20% of people give 80% of the finances, and, and that may or may not be true. I, I don't know. But the point is this. 
we're called to serve. And I, and I want to say that over the last number of months, I have been personally so impressed with, as I've seen people step up into leadership, step up into responsibility, saying, I want to serve, receiving messages saying to me, we're ready to get involved. I want to get involved. This is what I'm feeling that God wants me to do. It's just, it's incredible when you get to see people doing that. Service that that flows out of guilt or pressure or habit or legalism, but out of a genuine love for Jesus, that we love Jesus so much that we want to serve him and we want to serve his church and we want to serve his mission and that involves the community around us and the world around us. Jesus applauds our faithfulness to him, to each other, and he's calling us to grow in our faithfulness, to increase in our faithfulness, even in the midst of difficult times. Do you know that last Sunday morning, which was Christine's last Sunday on this earth, when she got ready in the morning, she told her nurse she wanted to come here. She ended up at the hospital, but she wanted to be here because she just pushed herself so hard for so long. Why? Because she was so faithful. The last words she spoke to me were, you know, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's faithfulness. And we are called to faithfulness just because we love Jesus so much. We're just faithful in being a part of what he's doing. Jesus applauds our perseverance. As individuals and as a church, we've had to face some difficult, painful realities. Some of you more than others. Realities that could have caused you to give up, to lose hope, to to, to, to stop moving forward. You have every reason just to throw it all down. But we haven't stopped, and we will not stop. We will endure and remain steadfast and keep going, and we will overcome. And as our hardships increase, so our our determination to persevere will also increase. It keeps coming, and we just keep going. And I believe that Jesus is pleased as he sees this little church in the town of Oakville that refuses to quit, refuses to give up, just keeps going in love and faithfulness and service and perseverance. And he looks at us, and I believe he's pleased. But then he looks at other stuff. Spiritual adultery. Over the past 30 plus years, I've been called to stand beside those who have suffered the unimaginable pain of discovering that their spouse has been unfaithful. Walking with them as they struggle with broken trust, deep, deep heartache, broken dreams, betrayal, feeling deceived by the person they trusted the most. Now, I personally have never had to experience this painful reality in my own life, in my own marriage. But I have seen firsthand the damage that it can cause to the spouse, to the children, to the extended family, to one's own faith, to one's reputation. Because adultery is more than a simple act or a mistake 
or a decision. It's a selfish act with far-reaching, deep-impacting consequences, and it cannot be taken lightly, even though we live in a culture that seems to gloss it over. Now, Jesus understands better than any of us the destructive nature of adultery, and that is why he uses adultery as a metaphor here for the breaking of spiritual vows. We come to Jesus because we believe that he is our only hope of salvation. We come to Jesus knowing that he has paid a significant price for us to have a relationship with him, that without his provision of salvation for us, relationship with him is not possible. Jesus loves us. Jesus loves us and enters into a covenant relationship with us. We, in turn, love Jesus, and our lives demonstrate our love to him by our commitment to him and our faithfulness to him. But the truth is, there are times that many of us struggle with fidelity in our relationship with Jesus. We get drawn aside by something more attractive, more appealing, more instantly gratifying. There are times when certain things, certain experiences, certain desires become more important to us than Jesus. There are also times when we deliberately, we deliberately set out, intentionally set out to balance two opposing lifestyles in our lives. Wanting the best of a relationship with Jesus, but wanting the best of what we believe the world is offering. And, and we're trying to, we deliberately set out and we end up living these hypocritical lives. We're still actively around faith and church and maybe even involvement, but our heart is far from the one who loves us most. As Jesus said to the children of Israel, your name is on my lips, but it's far from your heart. You say all the right things. You go to the right places. You participate. But in your heart, you don't love me above everything else. Wow. And then there are times that we realize that we've drifted a long way from where we once were in our relationship with Jesus, and we need to get back. Folks, the point that Jesus is making here is this. Spiritual adultery, unfaithfulness, matters to Jesus. Spiritual adultery has serious implications. It has significant consequences and is not to be taken lightly. Our hearts should be his and his alone, fully devoted to him, wanting nothing more than him. He's enough for us. And Jesus is addressing this, not just to the church in Thyatira, but to us in this little church in this town as we live our lives each day. Thirdly, window of opportunity. In terms of adultery, Jesus makes it clear that divorce is permitted when adultery has been, a, been committed. And as I've ministered to those who are the victims of infidelity and I accept that they have every white right to walk away from their marriage, many of them do. But on occasion, 
I get to witness what I consider to be an exceptional act of grace. An exceptional act of grace. I don't get to see it every day, but once in a while I get to see it. When an unfaithful spouse is given an opportunity to repent and start the long road back to restoring the marriage that's been devastated. They don't deserve it. They have no right to it. But by grace, it's extended to them. Folks, Jesus makes it, makes every effort to extend exceptional levels of grace to those of us who fall into spiritual adultery. There's a window of opportunity. There's a window of opportunity. There's a time that he allows and calls for, but the window is not open forever. There are always consequences for our sin. There's significant consequences for those who refuse to hear his call and respond as he asks. Because the truth is, Jesus can see deep within our lives. He knows our thoughts. He knows our motives. He knows our actions. He knows our desires. He knows our plans. He knows our sin. We may be able to hide things for a while from our spouse and from our children, our church, our family, our friends, our co-workers, but we can't hide from him. He sees it all. He sees it all. And he confronts it all. And he's calling us today and he's telling us today, listen, the window of opportunity is open. It's open. Repent. Walk a new road. Go in a different direction. Stop doing what you're doing and do something different. Change completely. Don't be like the woman in Thyatira who refused to repent and face judgment. Don't do it. He's almost like he's begging us today. I know, I see it. But the window of opportunity is still open. You can still make it right. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back. Folks, if we desire our world to receive the message of the gospel, we must demonstrate a faithful commitment to Jesus. Let me tell you something. There is nothing the world can sniff out faster than hypocrisy. Nothing. The number one accusation by unbelievers about the church is that it is a place filled with hypocrites. They can smell it miles away. The world is going to hear our message. They have to see a consistency, a faithfulness in our relationship with Jesus. Jesus is pleased when he sees us increase in love and faithfulness and service and preservation, perseverance. But spiritual adultery and unfaithfulness matters to Jesus. It has serious implications and consequences for us. And he's looking deep into our lives today and he sees all of it and he's calling us. And so the challenge for all of us today is this. 
Jesus is coming back. The morning star is going to rise. The darkness is going to disappear. And our window of opportunity will close. He doesn't want that for us. He wants us to avail of the grace that is so exceptional that we can't even begin to comprehend or don't even think for a moment we deserve and don't convince yourself that you do because you don't, but he just gives it anyway. And so I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning. And I don't know where you are in your walk with Jesus. But you know where you are. You know where you are. And we're not, no one's judging you this morning. All we're saying is, if you're drowning, he's throwing you a life preserver. He's giving you an opportunity. Don't just pass it by. That in this place this morning, this could be a moment where you look back on your life and you say that this was the morning where a new road started for you. Change happened in you. Something significant was done in your life as you allow Jesus to be who he wants to be in you. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come. Our worship team is going to lead us. If you want us to pray with you this morning, you can let us know. If you want to just find a place here to kneel and pray, I encourage you to do it. If you want to pray in your seat, that's fine too. We're just going to take a few moments today to ask ourselves, Jesus, what by your Holy Spirit are you saying to me this morning? What are you saying to me? What do I need to do? And then do it.